Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. My name is Dave Hanready and there will be no popcorn for the first time in a very, very long time. My usual uh, wonderful co-hosts Norma Howard and Dave Higgins are not here. They're uh, they're excommunicado, unfortunately. It's all good. They're just doing life's things. However, I do have two wonderful guests for this episode that I'm delighted to have in studio, in person. First up, uh, one of the great pop culture journalists of our time, the great Jen Gannon. Hello. Hello. Thanks. That's never happened before. <laughs> no one's ever called you that? Uh, no. <laughs> They've called me other things, many other things. That's unfair. I think that you should be regarded in that fashion. I'm delighted to have you on here. Uh, we're talking Tar, of course, today, and we're doing so in the company of Jen and uh, former Le Galaxy frontman and good friend, Michael Pope. Former Le Galaxy frontman and former broadcaster as well. You're still on occasion, do you? <laughs> like, okay. um, yes, I'm here to talk about Tar. Yeah, um, everyone in the room loves movies, of course. That's, it's a movie podcast. It's a music movie podcast type situation. It is Tar. We're going to talk about Tar. We're going to get straight to it. Let's just jump in. Uh, this film came out in Irish cinemas in January of 2023. It's in that weird kind of 2022, 2023 spillover type thing. So uh, it is, of course, about a fictional conductor by the name of Lydia Tarr, played by Kate Blanchett. Todd Field is our director. Uh, I was going to go through the entire plot summary, but that would take a long time. So first of all, I should say, this will be a spoiler-filled podcast. If you haven't seen Tarr, go watch it now, then come back. Uh, essentially, Jen, how would you sum up, uh, as an outline, what Lydia Tarr goes through in this motion picture? Lydia Tarr has... Lydia Tarr, I just love saying her name, sorry. But it's like... For me, when they came up with that name, I knew they were like, we've sealed this deal. I think it was like high fives all around and they were like, take the rest of the day off, Lydia Tarr. <laughs> um, she is having a full on mare, really. Like she starts off as one of the most together 
conductors, uh, EGOT, as we know by the intro. Um, and slowly but surely, over the course of the 158 minutes of this film, she falls apart in a kind of supernatural way almost so I mean a lot of people are saying like it's a film about cancel culture but I don't think it's as explicit as that I think with Todd Fields I think what he wants is it to be as ambiguous as possible and it is it's a complicated film I would say and it's a complex film and it can't I, and I think that's what people have really do, you know, digging in on with it. But also the fact that Lydia Tarr herself is an extremely slippery, complicated character too. Michael, do you yeah. think that there are in fact supernatural elements to this psychological thriller? <laughs> it, it is billed as a psychological thriller. Well, I was trying. I was trying to think of it outside of the prism of Tarr's point of view. Like I don't. I'm not even so sure that she thinks she's done anything wrong, even by the even by the last scene. But I was trying to think of, and then I was trying to think of a scene that she wasn't in. And I couldn't think of one. And then I was trying to think of a, teen, a scene that had just the actual meaning meaning of the scene in the scene. As in, it's like the Garrett Marenghi quote, I know writers use subtext and they're all cowards. <laughs> but this film almost has no text. It's all subtext. Everything mm. is, you're meant to, unf- every scene is meant to kind of, you're meant to think about, you're meant to unfurl. Every scene comes in at the exact last point where you need to come in. There's no superfluous information. And I feel that's why at the start I was like, okay, well, I don't like Lydia very much. But by the end, I liked her more, despite the fact that only because I knew her. But before but the character she was in the opening scene and stuff is like a character who was like, "Oh God, please just stop!" It was, it, I had Q and A anxiety. A Q and A is is a real thing. You're afraid someone's going to go yeah. up and go. I have more of a statement than a question. <laughs> I was at that Lynn Ramsey Q and A. So the one that everyone talks about, yeah. where you, we all wanted to shrivel inside out when. A man started pitching his movie. Uh, no, like just comparing her to uh, like other female directors, basically exclusively going, "Well, you're just like Andrea Arnold," and I was like, "Well, oh, good." <laughs> and that question seemed to go on for an entire lifetime. So when you start a film with a Q and A, well, we did. Well, starting a film before the Q and A is credits. A seven, six, seven minute credits. We'll tickets. get to all of that. Yeah. I should say. Let's just take a blast of the trailer just to set the tone of this film. Which, which again, you know, this is like more of an analysis of the movie rather than just a plot by plot description. So I, I can't stress this enough, listener. Watch the film, please, and then listen to us talk about it. If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tarr is many things. As a conductor, Tarr began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she had last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013, Berlin elected Tarr as its principal conductor, and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 EGOTs, meaning those who have won all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro. Thank you. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by emotion? Yes. Yes, it does happen. 
So yeah, a pretty unsettling trailer and the music in this film is unsettling. There are lots of things here designed to kind of, I think, rattle you as the character is, you know, goes through her own journey. The shortest version you could say of the plot is a fall from grace. You know, Mm -hmm. she is like this uber talented genius hailed by the world and through her own actions it is the classic you know oh no it's the it's the consequences of my actions coming to get me so and we can talk about that we can talk about you know, the film's approach to quote-unquote cancel culture etc mick mentioned there michael mentioned there the uh, the opening credits which are like i went to see this on the first screening on the first day i came out in the lighthouse cinema and i, I was like I'm always scared when I go to a movie. I'm like, what if, what if, what if they play the wrong thing? What if it's, what if I'm in the wrong cinema? <laughs> Tar starts off with basically what the end credits for a long time, and I was like, I'm, I'm sure it's meant to be this way. <laughs> please, please be this way. Uh, you heard snippets there from the opening scene, which is a very extended Q and A interview sequence with a real life interviewer from the New Yorker, mm, Adam it? Gottnick yeah. himself. Um, we'll get to that. But uh, the first thing I want to ask Jen is going into this. What were your expectations of the project and how did you find the actual finished product? I mean, I had seen, like I know Todd Field and like the way of little children with, you know, Kate Winslet. I love a bit of Kate Winslet in Trauma and (laughs) that film is definitely that. And that's like suburban hell and really claustrophobic and eerie. And he has that sensibility about him. And you know from like... um, you know that he's, you know, he was the piano player in Eyes Wide Shut, like as an actor, as a back, and like, you know that he is really reverential towards Kubrick, obviously, and that's all there. That was all kind of in the background, informing what I knew about what Tar would be, maybe, perhaps. And there was so such a weight of expectation because it had been so long since he'd brought out a film. And then I saw the teaser trailer. So the teaser trailer wasn't obviously as long as the trailer there, but it was like the most macabre carrot <laughs> I'd ever seen. It was just like uh, all this thing about sound and like the no sound, the absolute silent car driving through the tunnel. And then you see like at the end, like her arms opening to start conducting, but you don't hear anything. And it was just really training. I felt like it was training your brain into what this film may or may not be about, but like about the absence of something and the dependence on something. And it just, it it didn't, it felt like properly an adult film and it didn't give anything the fuck away because I hate now that like trailers are just, it gives you everything in the film, like of the film in the trailer. And even that trailer, it doesn't really give that much away. You're like, what is this? Is this like, you know, a a fictional biography of this woman's life or what the hell is going on? Is it about a woman slowly going mad? And like, I'm there for that. A woman is slowly going mad somewhere? Let me at it. Like, I'm dying for this. But it has that creeping dread to it. All of like those clips that I saw and it's, you know, Kate Blanchett and you're like, hmm, okay, I'm going to give this a chance, obviously. But then, you know, finished product wise, it just exceeded all of my expectations. Like, I... I had to go and see it twice, like in within the space of a week, like from seeing it the first time I went to see it again. And like I said, I said it on Twitter, I said if if they wanted to keep showing it on in the cinema, I would keep going to it because I think there's so much in it and it's so detailed. Um, he's just created this character that feels like she was always walking amongst us and he's just coaxed her, coaxed her 
onto the screen somehow like and, and he's followed her it's so well realised like that and there's so much to unpack in the film that you, I think you'd see something new in it every time you watch it and for you he do, he well he does uh, Todd Field does know her that well I was watching the uh, an interview with the two of them and he was saying I, I know the smell of her father when he came home from working in, working in the landfill Jesus. and he named, he named the landfill that he knew where she grew he knew the smell that was in her house when she was growing up and the smell that still repulses her you know it's incredible the level of detail um, Steven Soderbergh said about uh, Solaris his remake of um, science fiction uh, of the science fiction film he said if this film is not really your speed in the first 10 minutes you can you should walk away because <laughs> it's not going to change for you and Tahar really wasn't my speed for the first 10 minutes. With the credits and followed by the Q&A and as I said before, I have Q&A ick. It's something about it and something about the the guy's sincerity and Lydia's, she wasn't bullshitting. She was being very truthful and she was being very, she had, she, she, she had conviction and she knew exactly what she was talking about and she was impressive. But something about it just turned me off horror and turned me off the film and I'm so glad that I didn't have that Soderbergh thing where it's like, you know what, this isn't really my speed. Because it changed very quickly for me. As soon as we started, I started to realise what it was about this person, what it was about her behaviour and her habitual behaviour. She couldn't stop about herself. When she was um, speaking to the cellist at lunch, the cellist and her didn't really have much of a connection. They didn't have any spark whatsoever, but Lydia could not stop herself. She knew what she wanted and I was like, okay, I think I understand what's been happening in here now. And that's incredible for a film to reveal that kind of character 45 minutes in. Mm. You know, I was like, do I not know this person? I thought I knew this person, you know? And it only gets deeper and it only gets more, it only gets more about her. It's more intrinsic about her personality and stuff. So the first 10, 15 minutes, I was like, Looking on the side, side is kind of like, okay. Why am I? What? What is this? You're not the first person to say this. I I loved. The, this isn't me being like oh against the grain. I like so the first time fifty minutes is her in, doing this Q and A in front credits. of. I love the credits. Well, the credits, Honestly, the I The credits did. are great. I love <laughs> the credits I've because seen the credits to start. You know, it's. I just, I just didn't understand. I think what. I was getting you prepared for it to be extremely old school. They're oh, like oh, this oh, is an old school sure. yeah, film, yeah. and like. You know, Tar is one of those films where it feels like one of those 1970s films where it was like the monoculture, as in, yeah. this is the only art house film that's going to be released for the next whatever months. <laughs> and you're going to talk about it to death, like the way people would, you know, get a Leonard Cohen album and pour over it for six yeah. months. That's what Tar feels like. Well, I want to see it and again. I'm jealous you saw it again. I had to. Mentally, I had to. I to go see it again in the cinema. I'm not missing those credits, mm. which, is, which, which is unusual because if you ask me at the time, do you want to watch this, this whole seven minutes? minute sequence again no but I'm not missing those credits because I know now that it's part of the text yeah, because sure. he's you saying see. I think it's like he's saying when she says you know you cannot start without me Yeah. so it's giving you the yeah. time she is the time well, she I've come is around that, don't get know? me wrong it's just at the time I, I mean, it could have been a whatever mood I was in but I was uh, Tara's reputation preceded it it really did and a lot of not even awards chatter people I knew were talking about this film I text like I, I was in Spain at the time and I saw your letterbox review and I was like David Nine out of ten, because that's how I do. Four and a half out of five. Four and a half out of five. Nine out of ten. <laughs> Which, and I was like, yeah. Telling me nine because you don't, you know. I'm a tough sell yeah, sometimes. You no, know? like I get the raid two five stars, which I may never watch. But, so, but it wasn't that you were. Uh, you didn't even really tell me that much. You were like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was blown the fuck away. Yeah. I, I thought, and that opening sequence, which again, I mean, as Jen says, you can't start without me, which is the clip that we're going to play now. But like, it is this lengthy interview sequence in which, and it's so like, it basically is like, how are you so brilliant? Please tell mm. us, Maestro. And Cape <laughs> Blanchett is just, it's, it's. 
uh, ego oozing out of her, but in this wonderfully controlled way. And again, the more it went on, the more I was like, if this was the entire film, I think I'd be okay with this. It's weird how like you do feel like that because, but I, I was shitting a brick when I went to see it with friends of mine because one of my friends, like English isn't his first language. And when we sat down, I was like, oh God, if this is like this, he's not, he's going to hate this. He's not going to get it. I was kind of on edge then because I was, you know, looking to see if he was okay. But then, you know, as it kept on going, you're just, you get more and more into it. And I think, to be honest, she explains a lot of what you're going to see. When you see it again, when that interview is kind of like, she pretty much explains most of the plot. Let's uh, let's take a listen to it now. Time is the thing. Uh Time is is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. Now, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real time, making the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. So, like, okay, she's pretentious, but that's what I would expect. (laughs) If I was sitting in that audience, I would anticipate that this is what I'm going to hear and that's the level, that's the the tone, that's the narrative. And it reminded me of, of all things, I think I've talked about this before on the show, but, like, there was a time when I was at Electric Picnic years ago and they have the talking area, the minefield, and Miriam McCallaghan was interviewing... John Banville <laughs> about his like his wonderful career and everyone's everyone's quaffing wine and it's all like whatever and at one stage uh, she was like John I mean how like do you, how do you write your characters they're just so brilliant and John Banville like takes a moment and he goes well Miriam the, the truth is I don't write my characters my characters no. write me no. <laughs> and I had no. the same reaction but that's what this is and like but I never I wasn't like I was just like yeah, I get it. And that's what this is. And I'm just, I felt like I was in the room. And, I, you know, it probably goes without saying, but like, like we'll jump in and say it now. This is a phenomenal performance by Kate Blanchett. Yeah. And she has a history of phenomenal performances. But where does this rank in the canon for you? Uh, well, like, just as you were saying that, I think it's about pacing as well, because I think he's trying to say, like, even with the credits at the start, it's kind of like trying to say, you need to settle down, you need to pay attention, I'm going to get you locked into this, like, it's not good enough that you're still, because people are still distracted at the start of a film, he's like, I'm going to give you that time, but when we begin, we begin, and mm. you're going to concentrate, and I think that's what the that kind of opening sequence is almost, but I, for me, I think it's her greatest performance, for me, personally, with Kate Blanchett, I think she's fine. Finally kind of shaken off the Blanche Dubois that she had like and, and everyone like still associates her with and even for Blue Jasmine, which was essentially the same character, you know. And I think this is kind of cemented for me that she's someone else, but that's someone else's Lydia Tarr. So I'm like, Do you mean I don't know that? if I'll be able to watch her in anything else without going, Lydia Tarr stars in. <laughs> when you say the Blanche Dubois thing, do you mean like the hysterical woman? Like, is well, that she did of... play Blanche on Broadway. Okay. So right. like there, it was so, she's so associated with that role and then with Blue Jasmine because it's almost the same character and then she won an Oscar for it. I think she's always had that highly strong kind of element to her in my mind. But then also like with the, like I hated the aviator to be honest. I've never I, seen it actually. I, I really don't like it and I really didn't like 
I didn't care that she won an Oscar for that. I don't care about the, like her performance. She won an Oscar for the Aviator? Yeah. Dave, I would say I haven't seen it either, but I did not know that was meant to be that commanding a performance. I didn't realise that. It's a fine impression. Yeah. Like, of, do you know what I mean, Catherine? Oh, okay. So, I mean, and I think is? she <laughs> does, I, really, I think yeah. she um, does that voice. She still retains that voice for something like Tara where it's like I'm very austere and I have that kind of old school credentials. It's like in her voice in it, but I think she does something completely so different with this role but as I said I'm just going to think of her as Lydia Tarr forever now Lydia Tarr does Muppet Island like, <laughs> Lydia, I just I can't I don't know when I'm going to feel she'll, she'll have to do something radically different now next time for me to shake that character uh, What was your own kind of preconceptions about Kate Blanchett going into this? Um, uh, kind of that similar to Jen really as in there was always a kind of a, a Blanche Dubois type thing and, and even with her character in um our favourite, uh, talented Mr. Ripley. She's she's nervous. She's kind of afraid, and she doesn't know quite know what's going on. And she's uh, so I was never really like you said earlier. Oh, we 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 were discussing this earlier on that um, she said it was a career-ending role. <laughs> it's far from that. It's a career-defining role. Mm. But uh, like, don't look up is a career-ending role. <laughs> she's infected by. <laughs> Okay, Ocean's Eight is just that, we, uh, that's, that's the kind of folly that she that, that that's not this 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 is this is what this is this kind of stuff that she should be, that she should be doing. Oh, like the don't look up kind of panto thing is nonsense. Yeah. Like. She should have been Sylvia Plath if uh, Gwyneth Paltrow hadn't. I don't know. Had a ski accident. <laughs> <laughs> the man skied into her fucking back, okay? But he can't even enjoy wine tasting. <laughs> Something's happened to him. Can I sidebar for just a second? Because like, I've expressed my hatred for Don't Look Up on this podcast before. But uh, can you just, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you were at the press screening, Jen, but I know Mick was. Can you explain the press screening of Don't Look Up that you went to? Well, it was a very the... early morning one, wasn't it? <laughs> this is the thing. There we go, I remember. It was, uh, well, the, I, reviewed it on, I reviewed it on Arena I think, yeah. I met you. Yes, we day, did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is, and I will say, as with Jen, whenever uh, we met outside, we had a chat, and then when Jen went in, I w- I stayed around to listen to her, which is always we, we, and made faces through the window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just for distraction purposes. Um, yeah, it was. Well, I knew it wasn't going to really because because of the big short and so I knew it was going to be my speed, but I said. Okay, well, I'll go to the screening. What time's it on? And they were like, it's on at 7 a.m. in the lighthouse <laughs> in a, a, on a Baltic find- winter's morning. This is genuinely un- unheard of. Press like, screenings I, I, are usually I, I thought, well, it's got, it's, half it's 10 in like, the morning. It's the only one, the we have a screening on at 10. We can't do anything else. You all need to be there for 7 a.m. And there's like five dudes there. No one else bothered. Like, And yeah, and I think I texted you straight after and said, oh, yeah. well, you know, you won't believe what I've just witnessed. You, know? <laughs> you witnessed Timothée Chalamet saying fingerling bideos. That is enough for me. Oh, that, was, that was all I. That's all. I, the first thing I texted you was that they have fingerling potatoes. It yeah. is. No. Get them into you. It is one he's of. Like, the, he's like Michael. It's it's nine ten. And I'm like, <laughs> what have just finished watching a movie? I was like, I'm getting out of bed and being met with this. Yeah, it, Donald Cup is one of the worst films of all time. Her performance is pretty terrible, but she's bounced back. She is Lydia Tarr, of course. Uh, if I could cancel a film, it would be Don't Look Up. But uh, cancel culture, of course, is something that this film takes aim at in a weird way. I would say. So I've got like a clip here. It's about two minutes long. Which part of uh, we were debating? We're like, how long is this? It's got to be like you're thinking it's twelve minutes or so. So yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's, it's hard. As it's I said, hard it's hard to, for me to, to once I realise it's a winner, I get very excited and I kind of lose my mind. A very lengthy scene in which it's kind of early on in the movie where Lydia Tarr is doing a guest lecture, a guest kind of a masterclass for these students at Juilliard, and uh, she singles one out in particular, and uh, they clash, and this is her having a chat about Bach, and this is how it goes. If you 
Have you ever played or, or conducted Bach? Honestly, as a BIPOC, pangender person, I would say Bach's misogynistic life makes it kind of impossible for me to take his music seriously. Well, what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, didn't he sire like 20 kids? Yes, that's documented. Along with a considerable amount of music. But I'm sorry, I'm, I'm unclear as to what his prodigious skills in the marital bed have to do with B minor. Sure. All right, whatever. That's, that's your choice. I mean, after all, a soul selects her own society. But remember, the flip side of that selection closes the valves of one's attention. Now, of course, siloing what is acceptable or not acceptable is a basic construct of many, if not most, symphony orchestras today who see it as their imperial right to curate for the Cretans. So slippery as it is, there is some merit in examining Max's allergy. Can classical music, written by a bunch of straight Austro-German church-going white guys, exalt us? Individually, as, as, as well as collectively. And who, may I ask, gets to decide that? You know, what about Beethoven? You into him? Because for me, as a U-Haul lesbian, I'm, I'm not too sure about old Ludwig. But then I face him. And I find myself nose to nose with his magnitude and inevitability. So, yeah, we can talk about where that scene goes, but I will say that, like, when I was watching this for the first time, and I have only seen it once, I'm actually now even talking about this, I'm like, yeah, I really do want to see this again. I was so enraptured by her performance in this sequence that it took me a minute to be like, oh, fuck, it's turning into an art versus the artist debate. It's turning into cancel culture. It's turning into all this kind of stuff. And I've seen all kinds of readings of this. I've seen people say that this film endorses, you know, like, like this scene is actually meant to be like, oh, this kid's a woke snowflake and good on you, Lydia Tarr. And I've seen people like, no, 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 it's illustrating how problematic she is and she goes too far and ultimately nobody wins, etc. Jen, what did you take from it in the moment and what do you think of the sequence as a whole? I know that Richard Brody was one of those people in The New Yorker where he was like, this is disgusting because she's taken the piss out of like this poor dude and this whole film is like propping up like, you know, these untouchables that have like held the the world of culture in their hands forever and all that kind of stuff. But I don't, I don't know. Like Todd Field was talking about it and he said, look, it's two generations talking to each other. That's all it is. And I think it's done in such a way that like she's almost... It's like she's talking to her younger self as well, because I, I, I think at a moment, because, you know, everybody has when you're in college or whatever, you're in your 20s and that way and you're, uh, you have that kind of precious, precocious kind of way of thinking. And, you know, you feel like you know everything. And then she on the other side of it is like, you know, she's like oozes that kind of condescension that you get from academics and that kind of superciliousness as well. So, you know, you can take either side, I think, in that way. I think it's not falling down on one side or other. And I think that's the point of the film itself. It's so ambiguous. Like, it is left open to interpretation in that way because, I mean, I don't think it cements how anybody feels about cancel culture. I think it's it's more... Yeah, you could say like, oh, you look at it and you go, well, he's, you know, an entitled youth or, you know, she's out of touch or superior. Um... And I think it depends on whatever your kind of viewpoint is. But I don't think, I think it's pretty, like, she as a character is pretty enigmatic. You know, you're kind of going, like you were saying, you kind of start out going, 
this blowhard and then you end up kind of going do I love Lydia Tarr am I into this shit like so I don't think it falls down on one side or the argument I think the kid is very fragile and she looks smug and she looks kind of his, 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 his hand is like and it's shaking yeah. Yeah. and I've seen but people say really like yeah. and I've and seen people say that they're like oh that like that's a weakness and you know we're, we're showing him to be a joke and I'm like I didn't take it that way no I think it's more like he's very fragile and she's very domineering and you know she looks smug and kind of pathetic for trying to like you know mentally manhandle this kid and, oh, and, and make a show end. of him yeah, like, yeah. yeah. she goes too far like, exactly. like she has a moment where the charm is still in there and she makes a compelling argument and it's kind of like oh fair enough mm. but she goes too far because she's rattled by him yeah. and she pushes him he literally leaves he storms out and he calls her quote a fucking bitch which again it's like oh you know we all drop the guard every now and then etc and again like like I, I didn't I, I didn't take it as yeah she nailed it or whatever I, I was just like that was a really compelling exchange and nobody mm. really won there and uh, I, I thought it was an, an, a fucking brilliant scene yeah. I, I, every, I was just like don't end I was like I love this <laughs> keep going <laughs> that, that, that ambiguity is key to it though because I do find when he's speaking I'm kind of like oh yeah Mm. Okay, yeah, yeah, you, you go, kid. I listen to her and I'm kind of like, well, yeah, maybe he needs to, because it's not like, it, it when cancel culture, like, it's not like they're talking about uh, Chris Brown or Michael Jackson. They're talking about guy, dead white guys from a long time ago. Classical music itself must have been, I mean, probably across the board riddled with problematically weird, you know, disgusting fellas, you know? So it's, 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 it's kind of strange to hear that kind of conversation uh, that in that context because they're not talking about anything that we we would really understand as pop culture figures you know mm. for me that's what's interesting about it because he still holds that grudge against you know and it's it's, it's and for him it's on principle and for her her principle is you know well did you have you listened to this shit? Yeah, you're studying and his this music. Have you listened yeah. to this shit? Yeah, exactly. Because and yeah. she yeah. doesn't understand it because it's like she finds it atonal and she's taking the piss out of it and also kind of it's when she veers into kind of racial issues towards the end of it that you're like yeah big time yeah yeah. she does kind of when when she starts to get kind of when she starts to kind of lacerate him a little Mm. bit you can tell she's being pointed and she's being cruel Yes, and that's 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 the thing she becomes a bully yeah Yeah. 100% there is a moment where you're like okay cool yeah like you're still on the same level you've won the argument and you've done it in a way where it's like you know teach your students like I mean like Mm -hmm. life experience less life experience that's fine but she just can't let it go and she zeroes in on him and it's, as you say, Jen, it's pathetic. Like that's, you know, she can't, her ego is too fucking colossal and the, the idea that anyone could challenge this in this way, in a way that she's not expecting. And the performances are just, oh, they're, they're magnificent. Like like he's brilliant, she's brilliant. I, I'd love to know what the scene was like to film. I'd love to see like yeah. just kind of rough cuts of it because it's just, and again, every sequence in this is mostly just people talking to each other, mm. but it's, there's there's blades in this dialogue and there's just so much to it. Uh, I, I I thought it was a really really well handled scene. I didn't walk away from it thinking Todd Field hates young people yeah, who you know. know. It, it really it, it 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 steps back from the whole thing and just presents it very academically in a way. You know she is because she has both the passion and the academia to challenge him and he is he's a student you know he's, like he's, full she, of be- he's full of beans she's you performing know? for an audience like she always knows how to do so she's yeah. there's, an, there's a group of students sitting there so she's basically performing this laceration on mm. him for them she's so good and at it as well and you he's know? not really doing that he's unprepared he, she, you know he at the start you see him like he has his back to everyone because he's doing conducting and then he's sitting beside her at the piano and it's all very much to undermine him all the time yeah. like and, and those little moments are so noticeable and it's noticeable where like they're getting uncomfortable in the crowd but it's so 
nuanced. That's the thing. It's nuanced. It's it's not black and white. Like. Yeah, it's a total mismatch between the characters. Um, do you think, Jen, that the character of Lydia Tara, because just when you were saying, like, you're like, oh, I kind of love her. <laughs> like, is the film sympathetic to her? Is she pathetic? You know, ultimately, like, where she goes, she has a rise and fall. Essentially, she is, quote unquote, cancelled. But obviously, cancel culture is a construct that may or may not exist. And therefore, at the end of it, you know, she still has a job. It's a question of how you feel about that job, etc. But like, the character, like, it's a roller coaster of a character, and there's just so much more going on. Like, she's clearly paranoid. She's clearly mm. fraught with tension. She treats people terribly. She has, you know, uh, a partner played by the great Nina Haas, uh, who she's treating horrifically, and she's clearly, like, lusting after other people. She's accused of sexual misconduct, etc. She's very unprofessional with people like the Mark Doesn't Strong character. Which? Doesn't understand how emails, emails. work. Yeah. <laughs> um, Definitely doesn't. But of course, the ends justify the means for a certain amount of time. She is this genius musician and has all these, you know, things. But like, how did you find the arc of the character? I don't think we're actually asked to sympathise or empathise with her at all because of the way that he shows her. Like, like everything you said, you see that extremely clearly. Um, all of her flaws, but like, I just I'm charmed in that way because you have to play this role obviously with some kind of charisma there has to be something about her that people would be attracted to and people would fall under the spell of and and like it's a really finely tuned performance by Kate Blanchett in that way because you know she she doesn't want to over egg the monster but and make it a parody or ridiculous because it is so authentic that the monster has to be like she's figuring out the monster for herself in a way you know that's she's unravelling because she's thinking about her past and what she has done and what that might mean for her and whether for like extremely selfish, you know, egotistical reasons about her career and what she's built up, but also, and I don't, but that's the aspect of it that I, I just don't think you're supposed to have those feelings. Like I, people have those attachments to her because I just feel like it's you're giving a woman something to do which I always applaud in film. Like, I always feel like if you can replace the lead with a man, you're halfway there. And, like, that's what I feel about this. You could, if, I mean, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, it would have been made about a man and it would have been different, but, like, uh, it would have been the same in a way. The character would have been the same as in the rubrics of the character. Uh, like, the lines, I just, we we love Lydia Tower because we love the lines like we love I love like when she goes to see the child that's bullying oh. Petra and she's like <laughs> yeah. I am Petra's father God watches all of us <laughs> like the fact that she leaves that kid with that and you know but like is she oblivious to the fact that you know everyone's watching her too like threatening love, a child like, yeah. a, but it's one of the greatest scenes <laughs> of, amazing. Of, in the film like she you know kneels down to really fucking threaten a child which but, is like, great begs the question is this a comedy it, I think it's a it's, it's dark it's a black comedy in a way like some of it, I like, she, like like I said earlier on, she's almost in every scene. If I'm not mistaken, um, she's so compelling and so interesting. But uh, is it possible for me to be to to like her and be compelled, but enjoy her downfall a little bit? I think that's kind of what it is because because there ha- they, they, because this behavior is not acceptable. Even and it's like and and people are getting hurt, especially the, uh, I can't remember the actor's name, her partner. You know, that's so, Nina, uh, Nina Haas. Yeah, yeah, so I am I am not happy. For, I am happy that that this has come to light because so I can, I, I can find her compelling and actually even like her, but still not feel bad for her during her dur- during her downfall. Yeah, you're you're invested in it enough, yeah. but re- removed enough from it exactly. that you go well. She's getting what she deserves in a way. Like, um, but I will say, like, you fucking little nothing, and the way she says that. <laughs> 
in that scene to that guy, if it if it happens or not, we don't know if it's in her mind or not, is just a beautiful beautiful insults and the way she says it is just perfect and you want to do that you want to do that with as a woman you want to do that to these some of these mediocre men in your life that end up usurping your place in the world that you it's hard worn and hard earned and you see that when they're having that conversation over dinner in the restaurant and he's like oh help me like how do I be like you and she is like blah you're disgusting and then later on when you know the roles kind of are reversed and he's almost taken her place. She is disgusted and she's furious. And that line of fury, that did something inside of me because I was like, I think we so many women have been through that exact experience. But like, it's not like a Thelma and Louise situation where you're jumping off your seats going, yeah, Lydia Tarr. It's very complicated. You're going... She's the worst person ever, but God, I agree with her sometimes, you know? And uh, Mark Strong has the worst wig ever, I think. The worst. The, la- the latest in a, in, in a long career of terrible wigs. What was going on and there? I was though? always, like, you know, I have, a, I, have a, I have an iron in this fire, you know, it's a bald actor. Like, he's always been usually bald, but sometimes when he brings the wig out, not a good look, Mark. No. She's a real um, Daniel Plainview kind of. She's yeah, a real, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like that, like that yeah. kind of level of you love watching his downfall, but you also kind of secretly love him. To Megalomaniac, drain yeah, completely, yeah. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, I want you touched on something there that I want to get into so I'm going to play a clip here now which has screaming in it so there's a scene where Lydia Tarr goes for a jog in Berlin um, gorgeously dim lighting it's great and uh, she hears screaming nearby and kind of stops and looks very kind of freaked out by it and then just continues on with her life but this is like a kind of a 30 second clip so I'm going to play this and then we'll be going to Michael Pope for some uh, wild insight well, I'm the one who clocked it it's true <laughs> So I was in Berlin recently, I was in Neukon and there was just a constant sound of an ambulance. Yeah, like yeah. that ambulance. Happening. That German siren and just that lulls you to of, sleep. That le- the, it's, it's the sound of leaves and, and, and sirens is yeah. Berlin. So this is a spooky scene because what I want to get into here is Jen said a minute ago, like, is this happening? So I want to get into the whole, like, how much of this is real, do we think? But Michael Pope 
you saw this film clocked and you, you texted me afterwards <laughs> and said, did you clock it? I did not. Can you explain, can you explain what we just heard there, we please? We just heard the audio from the end of the Blair Witch Project which is Heather Donahue screaming as she tries to, as she runs down the stairs and Mike has the sound recording equipment, but she has the camera and you can hear the screams getting closer and closer and closer and closer. I'm That's still scared really by point, this, by the way, to this day. There's no more, for me, there's no more blood curdling scream mm. I've ever heard in my life, which is pure fear, pure panic, pure everything. And there has to be a reason behind it. Is it possible? You use Todd the Field? actual audio from yeah, the actual audio. Every, every single beat of it. I think you can hear, even hear a shout Mike at one point. So when, you, when you're in the cinema watching this... <laughs> oh, no, I, 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 the hairs in the back of my neck stood up as soon as I heard her scream and I was like... You knew. Well, it was a Pavlovian response. I was like, something here... I, I, I've just been uh, triggered by something I know from pop culture. And I was like, into, into, <laughs> into the mind palace. Where is, it? Where, is it? Where, is it? Where is it? Okay, I'm seeing black and white footage. I'm seeing running downstairs. It's the Blair Witch Project. I and can't then, believe I didn't clock this because I am obsessed with the Blair Witch Project. Yes, I'm still are. terrified by that and ending. That's why I'm if it's two in the morning, and I think of that ending I will not sleep yeah, to this awful. day I, I will never uh, I've told the story on the podcast before I'm not sure if I said it to you Jen but like I went to see Blair Witch Project in 1999 I was 15 years of age my brother saw it in America six months previous and by the time he got home it came out then so me my brother who was eight years older and my sister who was ten years older went to see the Blair Witch Project together my sister got so upset that she wanted to leave and my brother Alan was like no 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 it's almost over and it was when they got to the house mm. and my sister was trying to leave and he was like it's almost over stay my sister, who was 25, walked home in floods of tears. She was in bits. That night, I was fine. I actually was like, that was grand. I thought it was pretty good. I, I haven't really been affected by it. The night wore on. It was in my house in Drada. And by the time it came down to like just me and my brother were left up, I was like playing my PC or something. He went to go to bed. And as soon as he went, I'm going to bed. I was like, uh, I was like uh, so am I. Yeah, me too. And I just, it hit me. And that night we were sleeping in, we slept in the same room together with bunk we're beds. As we like to sleep, standing against yep. the wall. <laughs> oh, the Jesus Christ. <laughs> with the lights on. Um, <laughs> my, uh, we were watching, of all things, Wolf starring Jack Nicholson. Oh, nice. It was on oh. Channel 4 at like 2 like, in the morning. Classic. The, oh, uh, to this day, like, like you can't walk down the street without having a conversation about Wolf. <laughs> so, People stop you to have a conversation yeah. about Wolf. You've seen Wolf? I've got my Jane Spader in Wolf impression <laughs> right now. Kate Nelligan, you know. So, uh, the door burst open and there was a silhouette of a woman standing in the door it was my sister oh my crying and she said to my brother she was like you have to stay in the same room as me I can't sleep and he was like what and then she, he was like fine and I went no he's not going we all slept in the same room together no. I got one hour of sleep I'm still freaked out by it but so so that is the audio it's in tar and you sent me Michael sent me a YouTube link someone had yeah, we, we found someone who, who hit, someone spliced yeah. it like they, mm -hmm. they spliced the audio to, to prove that it's a thing and what I find absolutely bizarre is there's a pinned comment on the YouTube and obviously the YouTube comments are a strange world we know this but there's a pinned comment from someone called Ray like R-E-I Hans which it turns out is now the new legal name for Heather Donahue, who was in the Blair Witch Project, who is screaming. She found this video and she commented and she said, it's extraordinary to me that after 25 years of being told my performance had nothing to do with the success of Blair Witch, just the audio of my performance, 25 years later is still an effective shorthand for existential dread and I'm still not being paid or credited. Thank you for putting this video together. It's undeniable. Wow. It's undeniable. Uh, from when, when when I saw that film, I, I was with your brother. I saw it six months before everyone else over here, and I saw it. Uh, and that audio was on the radio ad that I saw the night before I went to see it. Jeez. And we were unsure. It was it, we were unsure if it was real or not. We didn't know because the the PR machine hadn't really start hadn't really kicked in opening night. But um, she's always been the MVP of Blair Witch. Yeah. Mm. And anyone who didn't understand that, like, oh, she was so annoying. I was like, I you can't be serious. 
And it's it, the fact that she still thinks she still thinks that or, or has picked up that through pop culture over the years. It's really fucking depressing because the film is nothing without her her performance in every way. Mike and Josh are only kind of there, you know. She is carrying the whole movie. She's she's the it's a first person Heather O'Donoghue account. Yeah, hundred percent. It's not on the lens. Hundred <laughs> percent. So why do we think Todd Field did this? I mean, like the thing for me about like the look of Tar is that it reminds me. Uh, in in certain instances, it reminds me of like a feeling of like "Don't Look Now" or Polanski. There's for me, there's a bit of Polanski about the paranoia of it, and then of obviously Kubrick, like and but also something like Possession, even like it's it's got a weird. There is a weird almost horror look of it, but like as in domestic horror, like the really shit that scares me, like that kind of uh, somebody just losing it kind of horror and losing their mind like and that's there is that kind of autumnal weird like look to it that it's distinctly European look that those kind of horrors have and I don't know if it's like a nod to wanting people to question what this film is as in it's not straightforward it's not a a biography of this woman it's not about cancel culture it's about something else and by making that very explicit that you know it it is something that's like taken from a film that people would know and maybe cop onto which I didn't um, it's it's asking a different question of its audience yeah, I well, I agree. I mean, the the, the apartment, the, or rather, where the two apartments were, yeah. are they feel like characters themselves as well? You know, the place where she writes with the lady across the, across the way and stuff. That f- I don't like going back there. When she's back there, I don't like. <laughs> I it, want you know? to live there. It's, it's a, <laughs> I like the modern place with the with the like the you know, brutalist place. Yeah, oh, I, no, I, no. I love the modern place. No, so I want cool. to live yeah. in the Charlottenburg one <laughs> with the the white. Yeah, with the crazy neighbor. I want to. That's where <laughs> with your I accordion. Um, but that, that they they feel the characters and and that is the autumnal thing. And I mean, I'm sure you've been there in that time Loads. of year, and it it like it does feel yeah. like that. It feels like that. It feels like. You know that sound of the sirens and the and the leaves, and but the kind those of, weird pockets of silence that yeah, you get as well. Yeah, complete like, silence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But Jen, I mean, like, like what you were getting at, like, is there an unreality to this? Because there are moments where you're like, well, what is going on? And like, there are sounds that aren't explained. There are plot holes, if you will, or there are narrative threads that are kind of left dangling in a compelling way. I would argue, but like, mm. there is one sequence as well where she uh, remind me someone does someone steal something and she runs after them, but like. She ends up in like a weird kind of underground complex. Well, yeah, like she, 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 she has the a, Olga, who's the yeah. cellist that yes. she's mad about, the young Russian cellist. Um, she's been rehearsing in her Charlottenburg flat, and then she gives her a lift home, and Olga forgets her little teddy bear, and she runs in into this mad, you know, kind of squat place where she apparently is living, but like. By the time Olga goes in, it's like she just disappears yes. completely. And there's a dog. There's, no there's a there's massive nowhere, there's dog. There's a human yeah. being could live there. Yeah. So. It's and very like, like the Gates dog of is hell almost like thing. a monster. Yes. Like it, it's mm. too big to be a dog, and it's it's like a small horse, maybe. Um, and like it's real, like, is this the prison of her mind? Is, is this, this happening? Yeah. yeah. Is like, this where her mind is going? And like there's been a lot of talk about like when she falls over, and that fall is so hard. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Um, it, the, twice I've seen I flinched when she falls, like it's, it's bad. They're saying that everything. And after that, it's not real. Okay. There's a theory that it is. And like, you know what? I get it because like, there's loads of, we don't, like obviously there's this whole relationship with Krista is the girl who um, 
died by suicide who had a relationship with Lydia Tarr and is you know, threatening to kind of undo her. And she's kind of trying desperately to keep this secret and, and claim that this girl is mad. And, and like, there's all that aspect to it where she receives like a book and like the Vita Sackville West book challenge, which is about an affair and about a woman um, dying by suicide as well, a lover dying by suicide. So there's that, there's all the symbols, there's the symbols that appear around the house, like in her daughter's room. Then there's like, you know, the book goes missing, like one of her books um, of notations goes missing and things all around the house are being moved. So these are all stuff that is just not explained. Um, and there is that kind of element to it where you're like, is this really happening or not? Or is she losing her mind? Or what is exactly happening to, to Lydia Tarr? Yeah, it oh, is. I don't think it's ambiguity for ambiguity's sake, though. Just no, like, no. Like I said, the subtext is well, it's there to be to be studied. It's there, mm. it's there to be unraveled, you know. We're not dealing with like... Guy Ritchie's revolver here. A far better film, of course. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's there. It's there to be studied. You know, it's there to be understood. And and, and I, en- I'm, I'm, I envy Jen for seeing it twice because even hearing some of the stuff that I kind of had forgot, I had forgotten about the the her chasing after the I'm not ch- or going to give the girl back her teddy and the dog. I had forgotten about that. You know, because. And now I realised that for a bit the first week afterwards I was like, well, I was like what? what was going on there? Because I knew something else was going on. Todd Field had me in the palm of his hand. I wanted to know what this meant. And I yeah. feel like she's, it's like, it's a film about like, a, you're haunted. She's being haunted by her own guilt about the situation and, and haunted by those aspects of her life. And they're the ghosts if you, if you want, like they're the supernatural element. But then like there's another, I don't know, I had when the second time I saw it because there's this whole other part of, it's like Succession. There's loads of stuff in Succession where like Logan's sister will be mentioned, Rose, and what happened to Rose. And you don't know what happened to Rose. They never talk about it again, but you're just piecing this backstory together for yourself, kind of, or, or going, what was the, what was that? about and there's that with the sis- the Nina Haas's character Sharon and her sister there's this whole thing about oh they were wild they always talk about they were wild they were crazy and then her mother is in the apartment one time when Lydia gets home and it's like they went out they're gone they're you know the sisters are together and that's when she kind of finds the symbols arranged like are drawn in the child's room and I was like is Nina Hoss because she's so browbeaten and she's so under Lydia's thumb like even you know at the start of it you see Lydia kind of lying to her about the tablets that she depends on that she took them from her and um, then it's like oh I I, fe- I like got more prescription drugs when she was away so it's like she's lying to her and withholding these drugs that her girlfriend or partner needs so we know she has this malicious quality to yeah, her yeah. So I was thinking, did Nina Hoss, Sharon, is Sharon sick of this behaviour? Has she, she's sick of these affairs? She knows that she's having these relationships. Is this her and her sister trying to play tricks on her and drive her crazy by doing all these kind of things as well? That was another thought I had. But then I was like, I don't know if any of this happened at all. Am I <laughs> going crazy? That, that, isn't that what's compelling about it? Though? Yeah. yeah, I said earlier on, I think I said plot holes by mistake. I mean, I, I don't regard them as plot holes. I think it's just planting seeds of intrigue. Uh, Nina Haas, by the way, wonderful actress. If you haven't seen the film Phoenix, go seek it out. She's amazing in it. And I wish she was actually more considered in the awards attention yeah. for this, like for supporting actress. She's brilliant. Uh, speaking of awards, though, I want to play a snippet from Kate Blanchett's uh, BAFTA victory. Mick uh, made a reference to it earlier on, but she says something in this that kind of really intrigued me. So let's have a listen. And thank you uh, to, to Focus and Universal for being 
such extraordinary partners, this was a very dangerous and um, career-ending, potentially. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, mm, um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, undertaking and um, so thanks for holding uh, their nerve. Thank you for everybody. Um, like, like Austin said, it does take an army. No one stands up here. Um, you know, it's, it's the ensemble. It's all of the people who spend hours and hours. Yeah, 59, 58. That's my, I'm getting closer and closer to my age. Um, <laughs> um, every single day. So thank you, to, obviously, to the, to the cast and crew. She really is wonderful at giving speeches. Uh, I recall when she won the BAFTA for Blue Jasmine, Philip Seymour Hoffman had passed away and she dedicates it to him at the end of it. And it's the most emotional thing ever. It's beautiful. And she holds it together. And there's a shot when she's walking off the stage and you can see from like the angle that they have her at that she's just about to break. She's so classy. She's so fucking cool. Uh, maybe it was a throwaway comment. You kind of mentioned earlier on, Mick, but she does say at one stage, this was a potentially career end role. Is she just having a joke there or is there anything in that? Well, I heard, when I heard it out of context, when I, when I read it out of context, I thought, oh, come on, give me a break here. But it does seem like she might have been having a bit of fun with it, you know, as in, in terms of, you know, what Lydia represents more than anything else, you know, in terms of, you know, just desserts for people who've been manipulating their way through an industry for a lifetime, you know, and especially in that fucking industry. Oh, she's being meta. Okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, she's, because she's, she's such an intelligent, smart uh, actor and performer, you know, she does know what she what what she's done. She does know the industry she's in, she did, and, and the reckoning has come in the last couple. Of, not enough, but the reckoning has come in the last five to seven, eight years. You know, and she knows exactly what she's. You know, still to this day, there will still be people. I mean, we're seeing this every every weekend. We're seeing you know the likes of Justin Roiland. We're seeing the guy from Creed Creed Three. Probably tell me his name, David. Jonathan Majors. Yeah, yeah. We're seeing this, and still keeps happening. So she, you know, she was uh, in a Woody Allen film. She won an Oscar for a Woody Allen film. Yeah, like the Weinstein she, Company's fingerprints yeah, are all over so yeah. many of her films. So she, she's, she's a, not she's stupid. A, she's a, she's, a, she's a, yeah, exactly. She's she's got a ferocious intelligence. She knows, and it, it gets a laugh. But it, you know, it, I don't think it's a, a frightening performance that you never come back from. You know, and Jen, is it the kind of role that people would kill to have, or is there any actress that'd be like, you know what, no, that's too much for me? I mean, I think some, I don't know, some act. Well, like a lot of actresses wouldn't just would not be up for that challenge. And it is a challenge because, you know, she learns how to conduct, she learned German, she just completely, you know, and they say immersed yourself in the role, but she really created that role with Todd Field. And, and I think there's not a lot of actresses that are up on that level of completely disappearing into something and not being afraid to be reprehensible and be ugly about it. And not ugly in a real... I'm going to, you know, put on makeup like Charlize Theron kind of ugly. I mean, like an ugly soul and carry that around with them or be able to articulate it in such a way where it is so intelligent. I think, you know, in in the wrong hands, we would, on another podcast in a parallel universe, we would be laughing at a terrible attempt at somebody doing a Lydia Tarr doing this film. I don't know who exactly. I'm trying to think of who. I can't think of a single actor. Yeah, I can't. Who could play the role? Who even attempt it? yeah. I mean, you're good at this, Dave. Come on. Well, these things are always very hard after you've seen someone do it and do it as well yeah. as this. Um, I'll have a thing. Samantha Morton <laughs> would be a great Lydia Tarr. Samantha Morton. Sigourney Weaver, maybe. Maybe Sigourney. Yeah. Um, oh my God, Andrew Riseborough. <laughs> We've done it now. Oscar legend. <laughs> <You're> Oscar. <laughs> but actually, just just on the awards, actually, I mean, obviously, so she wins the BAFTA. There, she was at one point a lock for the Oscar Michelle Yeoh won it in the end I find I, I, I don't adore that film but I do adore that performance mm. I do adore Michelle Yeoh and that is also an extremely challenging performance I think she's absolutely brilliant in it yeah. and who would possibly begrudge Michelle Yeoh winning an Oscar she's a wonderful human being and everyone's delighted about it but like 
at the same time, it feels like this, you know, this is this is an Oscar winning role. I mean, like like from Cape Blanchett, right? I mean, in any other year, yeah, against other people, she would have won, and it would have been justly so. But I do think what I'm more agog about is that sound and sound design weren't even nominated. Mm. Yeah, which is impossible because this film, there is no other film that I've ever seen that has made you concentrate on your hearing so much and what you're hearing and. It, it's like you're breathing. It's like your hearing is in time with your breathing. And I just thought it was absolutely phenomenal. And I think, you know, it's pounding, it's aggressive, but then you also notice its absence. Like, the, I just think it was absolutely brilliant. And I'm really surprised. You say about sound, though, I have three words for you Top, Top Gun Maverick. Which I love. When, when, I love when, it. I'm I, sorry. I, I adore it. I'm with Jen every step of the way here. When it came to the sound, I felt like, you know, I was listening to Lydia's, not only her words, I was, and I was watching her face, but I was listening to her breaths. I was listening to the breaths she wasn't taking. I was listening mm. to all this kind of stuff. And I, when, when the nominations came out, I'm not as invested in the Oscars as, as, as much as maybe the next guy, but I did look up that and I was like, it's just, it, was, it was boom, boom, crash that they went for in terms of sound-wise and not actually the subtlety of... Was it nominated there. for picture, director, It script? was nominated for director, picture... Script, um, script, I think. Script, and it, okay. should have. It, it for me, it would, it would have, should have won best film, best director, actor, and screenplay. I think, and sound and song for apartment for sale. <laughs> yes, which we will play the episode out <laughs> with uh, uh, later on. To, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can I can I hear it now? No? Do I hear, do I hear <laughs> it? Now? Do you want to hear? All right, fine, fine, fine. fine. This is Lydia Tarr uh, at her full breakdown. She is annoying the neighbors next door, and she's playing an accordion. And uh, yeah, this would be heard in like you know urban outfitters. <laughs> See, some drag queen is going to do this. Some drag. Queen is going to do this scene if they haven't already. Take me back to the cinema, Jen. The first time that scene happened, yeah. what was your response? I we all just broke our bollocks laugh, and like it was just—it's <laughs> such a release as well. It's like the valve like is off yeah, because it, you've been you've seen so much that intensity. Was first, that, that was first. I'm probably only belly laugh, and yeah. I felt good because you know you are wound up pretty tight for most of the running time here, yeah. and especially for the scene that comes before it, you're, or the rather the scene in in, in terms of what happened across the hall. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're pretty wound up and you're confused and you're really disturbed by what you've seen. Harrowing, yeah. Harrowing, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it, as Jen said, it's a, it's a release valve. It's kind of like, okay, well, she seems to have gotten over it. Maybe I can too. And no. your sister's in jail. So. And then I was like, good God, if I had seen this during lockdown, I would have done that. <laughs> At some point, I would have sang that at 3am. Like Order an accordion online. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the ending. Um, so, you know, the ending, uh, Mick was saying he's not very video game literate. Um, but, I did, but I didn't know what I was watching. But I just, Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know live video game music or... What's the thing? I understand well, live orchestration yeah, for so, media is a thing. Yeah, and like like there are there are some incredible people who do this type type of thing. But like so when the opening credits, the endless opening credits happened, I remember like watching those credits and I did see special thanks to Capcom Monster Hunter and I was like, What the fuck? I was like, <laughs> What on earth could that possibly be in this film? So there must be a scene where a kid's playing Monster Hunter, I suppose, and that doesn't happen. And then the film goes on for so long that I just completely forgot about this entirely. And then the very end of the movie is uh, having been quote unquote cancelled and losing all of her pedigree and jobs and everything, 
Uh, she goes to, it's not said, is it the Philippines? Because it's not actually... It's like an anonymous somewhere in Asia. Okay, like, and she takes a job and you're not quite sure what the job is. Um, and she's kind of saying, oh, I don't know the sheet music for this, etc., etc. And the last thing you see is her in a similar kind of like, here she is doing her performance. It's all very bombastic and the camera cuts away. And there's people in cosplay in the crowd and they're all dressed up as characters from, as it turns out to be, the video game Capcom Monster Hunter. And then it hits the credits. And this has provoked feverish debate amongst people who are like, it's offensive. Uh, You're slagging off gamers. You're saying that they're low art. You're saying this, you're saying that. I'm a gamer. I didn't think it was low art. I didn't think it was taking the piss out of gamers. I thought it was a case of like, she doesn't understand that this world that she's in actually does matter to people and it's difficult and it's challenging and you're not the star and all this kind of stuff. That, that was my takeaway. What do you think? But I don't think she was taking the piss either because she's treating it with respect. Like mm. she's not out there just going on beneath this. She knows that this is, you know, she has this job to do and she can be a maestro anywhere. And I think for me, the key to the whole ending is when she's on the boat and they're talking about the crocodiles. And like they said, you know, the guy says on the boat, you know, they, they were from a Marlon Brando film and, and, and they survived they'll come back. They always will, you know, she'll survive. She'll continue. She'll move on. And for me, it was like, there is no such thing as cancel culture. There's just waiting it out until, you know, the cultural world moves on and people forget. And she's biding her time and she's not being disrespectful, I don't think. And like, you know, in the opening scene, in that interview, she, she says it's about to reach back in time and transform one's past deeds. And is is that what this is? You know, is that what we've just watched? Is this the beginning? This is the beginning of our new chapter of redemption. But is the film taking the piss out of? I really I don't, don't think Todd Field so. would, cont- would have contempt for no. this industry. He's he's a very he's a very intelligent man, and I think he would appreciate like. Um, there was people were saying like you know he's been working on tar for six years. I mean, what do you do? Where does the money? And this is a genuine thread I read on Twitter. It was like, what do they do? And it's like these guys work in commercials. It's their bread and butter. It's what they do. They they do this job and they do it very well. They work short, brief periods. They earn a lot of money and they do a great job at it. You know, and I think to do that, he can't. He can't have contempt for this industry or or this or this media, this this side of media. He can't, he can't because he's he's a human being. And the film has taught us anything. It's that like you know, there's a place for that art and there's a place for this art. You know, and I think she maybe. I mean, does she want to be there? No, but I think it's also she feels like an alien. And the thing about it is, the majority of people that have gone to see Tar are an alien in, in that world too. Like it's the reason why a lot of people thought Lydia Tarr was a real person is because we don't know anything about like classical music or modern classical music. So we feel like yeah. an alien watching this person. And then at the end, she feels like an alien in this world that is the modern world of pop culture in that way, like that she has no idea about. So it's kind of flipping it's that idea. Arguably a bigger box office, definitely exactly. a, big, a bigger box office draw in terms of, uh, I mean, monetary wise. I'm sure know? she's getting well paid for the job that she's doing. Yeah, I guess yeah. last thing on that before we kind of move move to finish. Uh, just when you said that she's going to wait it out, Jen, do you think that the character of Lydia Tarr could possibly get back to the heights in her profession? I mean, if this is real, like as in if it's not all a dream or all of just in her mind as like, is she somewhere in a sanatorium, like imagining <laughs> all this happening? Recovering from a concussion. She's exactly. In the, in the doorway of that, that, that wet building she entered. Yeah, like, basement she's with dog. still there with the dog. <laughs> dog like, laughing her face. So you know. if it is, you know, quote unquote real, I mean, I do think that, like, I mean, cancel culture isn't real. Like, so she's definitely on her way back, even if, like, she did make an absolute show of herself, like, which I loved that scene uh, where she comes on stage and pushes oh, wow, her yeah. off and says, you know, you fucking little nothing. Like, that's <laughs> amazing and I love it. Uh, but 
you know, I think, yeah, anyone has, as we've seen time and time again, like there is no, you know, you just wait it out and then you wait for your time and you, and you crawl back into the world. Let's have one final clip before we wrap up. Uh, I want to hear from Todd Field and Kate Blanchett chatting together. They did a variety interview where they were kind of breaking down the process. Very and good really good. It's great. Yeah, yeah, so I have about a minute of this, which I just found quite fascinating. And I want to kind of talk about their relationship and the future, perhaps. So let's have a listen. We'd started with the music. I mean, interrogating why is it the Marla Fifth? Why she saved that for last? What is it about that piece of music that means so much to her that she is so frightened of? I said to Todd, I'm very slow um, as an actress, so can I just spend the first few days just walking past camera, back a shot. There's a lot, there's a lot of transitional, you know, connective um, shots. Let's just do a few of those and, because you know, there's a lot to do in this role. And then he, I knew, always knew the bad news was coming with Todd, because he'd go, here's the thing. And he said, we're going to lose the orchestra in Dresden and we have to do all of the conducting first. And I was like, Stella! <laughs> but it was a gift. Yes. Yeah, it, it was, it a, was gift. a gift yeah. because I started with what she loved. I started with what she did, where her identity was bound up. And I realized the stakes because when we lose what we love, when we lose our identity, without the music, who is she? And working with that orchestra, I mean, they had to act, I had to conduct, Nina had to play the violin, and we worked with an amazing... And we uh, would never have had the players in the orchestra. No, the players in the orchestra actually became integral to the film and were and continued all the way through the film. Amazing. Oh, explosion yeah. at the end. <laughs> that, that's a, in the trailer, that, that is actually what, mar- what marks that famous shot of her, her arching back. Yeah. yeah. Um, that... that that sound is, the, and it's like, don't, you don't need to do that in the trailer. You're, you know? Well, speaking of no need to do it, you're both enjoying Variety's audio bed there <laughs> in the background. Well, um, very much so in that clip, I was enjoying uh, Todd Field not wearing his his prospector hat. Big hat. <laughs> he's, Big giant he's, hat. He's wearing a very, very oversized baseball cap, which... Do you want to uh, well, drop your Todd Field factoid, well, Michael? No, we just, we, I, ta- I said this to you thinking I had dropped, like, you know... This, he, this is, he said this it himself on Mark Maron recently. He did, but, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, Todd Field created a, a, a type of... It's a tobacco... Like it, it's meant to look like chewing tobacco. It's called Big League Chew. Oh, it's wow. a chewing gum. Him and a friend of his put it together where you know it's kind of it looks like kind of um, almost like minced beef, but it's just, it's like uh, appetizing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's strawberry gum when you put it in, you chew it. It's, it's for ball games and that. He got out before this brand was sold to Wrigley's, as in Wrigley's Spearmint Gum. He was like a teenager or something. He was like a teenager, but it's just a it, it's a great fact. It's a he, huge like it's a thing. Huge, yeah, I went to, I went into one of those. Uh, Bizarro sweet shops today, but that's a, obviously a front for a drug empire. When it <laughs> <laughs> and I went in and I said, and I was like, "Do you have big league shoe?" And they're like, "We do not know what you're talking but about." But we have drugs. He's had a yeah. mad life. Yeah, you think about it, big it's time. Yeah, pretty. but he's talking oh. about how he might never direct another film after this. Yeah, uh, good for him. Which like, would be very upsetting. But that would be, but I think good for him. I think like if look, that's your finest hour. Like that's yeah. your finest work, and like. You know, it's it's a defining piece of work, and like it may not have won the Oscars or whatever, but I think like people will be talking about this, you know, in twenty, thirty years. Yeah, it, it made twenty four million dollars. It wasn't exactly like a box office sensation, but it was never never going to be, was it? it? No, it can't no. be. I mean. How do you market this to like the mainstream plebs? You can I'm loath to use the phrase, but you can market it as a meme. I think like Lydia became a kind of thing where you, you, you know, but it didn't re-release tra- it Morbius it did, style. It did, it is that where you're going? Tra- with? It translate the bumps on seats in in like in like the flyover states. Of course, it never was going to ever. But in terms, like I think it will. Uh, I loved everything ever. Uh, despite myself, I loved everything everywhere all at once. 
Tar will endure more for me, I think. It would endure more for me and I think it will endure more in, the, in culture. It's great that it, it did become like this kind of memeable thing. Oh, months, before, months before we've Be- seen it. It's like Baby Annette in a way, but it's like <laughs> the er Baby Annette. Like there was a brilliant article in the cut where it was like 47 facts about Lydia Tarr like or something <laughs> one of them was like you know if you search Ghislaine Maxwell and Lydia Tarr and Getty Images you will get so many results like <laughs> that's everything that's so believable because yeah. she is this fully realised hyper like it's hyper realised character there's, there's almost too much detail in her so those that's why those things work because you're like yeah I believe that I totally believe that. I, I want to see her conduct Baby in a, you know, in with the Berlin them. Philharmonic. Like, I don't believe it happened. I want to see Lydia Tarr and the Temple of Doom. Like, I, you know, I want, like, she's there. <laughs> she's, you still feel like she's out there in the world. When the film ends, you're like, she's somewhere doing something that we don't Maybe know Maybe she's about. going under the name Linda, but you know, we'll yeah. see what happens. <laughs> she's up to no good. Maybe she's hillbilly elegy. Or <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> a film that doesn't exist, by the way. Like, I, I will never see it ever. Yeah. I, I don't think it what exists. What about those Terminators, though, guys? There's two Terminators <laughs> inside of you. <laughs> um, you. You could hear, like, you know, the, the, the respect they clearly have for each other. It's quite the union, Todd Field and Kate Blanchett, in, in that clip there. And, she, and in her BAFTA speech, which um, we heard some of earlier on, she does say, uh, you changed my life. Which I was like, wow. I was like, is that you know, like, like that's a that's the highest compliment. I mean, I still can't quite unpack that. I'm not sure what she means by it. What do you think, Jen? No, I mean, I guess it's because if you work so closely with somebody on something that they've worked on for so long, and they're kind of bringing you into that world, and then you're the center focus of that world, I think it really pushed her maybe as you know to work that closely, to work in tandem with somebody and and shape a film in the way that they have. I think it does change her as an actress moving forward about what she will do next because it is so like I said it's, it is so fully realised and, and it was them together like a, a very much a collaboration and I, you don't really get that a lot I suppose with directors or you know and, and screenwriters you don't you don't get to work in that way and I think in the way that like you know um, like with There Will Be Blood with the, the way with like you know Paul Thomas Anderson with Dana Day-Lewis, he kind of changed his life in that way as well. Like as in, as an actor, as uh, the way he's seen. And I think that's what is she's going through with Todd Field maybe. Maybe she'll write and direct a sequel to this. If he, I mean, he don't, sh- don't. should change. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> yeah. well, too tired, uh, too furious. You know, <laughs> she, has, she has worked with F. Gary Gray, so. I mean, listen, I mean, uh, all the so, greats. Uh, 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 you know, uh, so. Uh, what film did they do together? They did, uh, didn't he direct Ocean's 8? Oh, oh yeah. again, a film doesn't exist. Great coats, beautiful yeah. coats. coats. To paraphrase yes. Aretha Franklin. Sorry, I'm really going in there. It was just the two previous roles really got to me. I was like, you know, really? I was yeah. just like, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're wrapping up now, but I will say, we, we didn't even talk about Tara's, Tara's style. She's got style. Beautiful. I am obsessed. The, the thing about it is, like, she kind of looks a little bit dark crystally. There's a weird <laughs> look on like uh, of her in this film, Kate Blanchett. And it's not... It's not a, a vanity performance. There's nothing, but it's all gorgeously utilitarian. It's like uh, made to measure suits, like mm. all of that kind of thing. Really comfy shoes, but looks, everything looks amazing. Also her coats, her coats. Even all her travel coats. outfits. Even yes, the baseball, the baseball cap. cap. I, I oh, you like, remember that? Uh, it looks so good yeah, in her. I was, just, I was like, God, she came home and I was like, God, that's, look, that's, that's a comfortable a flight outfit that yeah. is. You know? <laughs> the suits, like just, uh, like, the, just the, seeing the, that. The kind of grey slightly petrol blue shirt from the iconic uh, shot yeah I, I, it's, it's, it's a shirt of dreams 
The shirt with dreams. It really is. Like, as a, you know, I like, I like, a, I like a billowy, billowy buttoned-up shirt as, an, as much as the next mm. guy, and that's the one for me. Well, I don't know how to follow that. So, any other business, <laughs> or are we, are we, are we closing the door on the uncancelled Lydia Tar? We'll never close the door on Lydia. I would be afraid to close the door on Lydia Tar. Put it that way. Well, I guess actually, last thing I would ask, because uh, we talked, we, we've mentioned several times, you know, if she was a real person, would you love to interview her, Jen? I would be well like you see that bit where the, she is kind of being interviewed in a way by a fan and there is this deep flirtation almost yeah, between yeah. the two of them and then she that bag the Birkin bag she kind oh, of yeah. ends up getting it we don't know how maybe for favours <laughs> but we don't know so like yeah there's she is just a fascinating character but I will say when we're saying that you know she is so real like there was Marin Alsop, who was this like female yes. conductor who, who took offence to it because she time, is yeah. a lesbian, yeah. the one I heard married about, yeah. to a classical musician. She has a child and, you know, she runs a fellowship for young musicians and she's obsessed with Leonard Bernstein as well. And she was really upset with this, thinking that they'd stolen from her life and she said she, her heart was broken. And wow. But they have both denied, I don't know, like they've just said... You know, she said she was offended as a, a, a female conductor, okay. especially. Like, so it's hard enough in that job to get where you are right. without this kind of film, casting aspersions on who you're like in your private life. But it, like, they were like, no, 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 she's definitely fictional. So, but does Lydia Tara walk among us? Is she though? Is she yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll leave it there with that, uh, that wonderful intrigue. I want to thank Jen Gannon and Michael Pope. Thank you both so much. Thank you, David. Thank you. For joining me on this show. Uh, I will try and resurrect No Popcorn a bit more often. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, I, I desperately want to talk about this film. And now, having talked about it, I actually desperately want to see it again. Is it? I think it it's is. Kind of... in, it's still in the i5, I think. Oh, okay. All right. Well, may, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll head along. But uh, thank you both. Thank, thank you so much. You, Appreciate it. That was No Popcorn. Uh, it's been a long time since we've done an episode. I should note, I will include in the show notes a link to a playlist of previous No Popcorn episodes. We'll be trying to get more of them done in the near future. No Encore, of course, is also coming back, kind of a new season, a new era for the show. So if you're just dropping in for the first time, do check out the No Encore podcast. Subscribe to this feed if you have it here. And uh, yeah, we'll be back very, very soon. My name is Dave Hanratty. This has been No Popcorn. There will be No Encore. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.